On July 21st, 1954, John Tolkien, better known as J.R.R. Tolkien, released the first book in a series of books that would become extremely renowned, very popular, called The Lord of the Rings. The first book in the series was The Fellowship of the Ring. You may or may not be familiar with Tolkien and his short stories, but let me help you out a little bit. We're going to talk about one character in particular. See, he introduces the character, and his name is Gollum. And somebody else will fill in the details for you if you've never heard of Gollum. But what you need to know about Gollum is he has a ring. You come across it, and it's really important to him. And he loves it. He loves the ring so much that he forsakes everything else in favor of serving the ring. So much so that he calls this ring his precious. He says it a little bit more creepy than that, but the ring is his precious. It's what he loves. It's what he lives for. And the question that I would like you to have on your mind as we work through our text today is, what is precious to you? What do you love? We're going to be in 2 John today. You can turn with me in your Bibles to 2 John. It's near the end there. It's uh, one of the shortest books in the New Testament. It's only 245 Greek words. So we're going to blaze through the whole thing today. Um, got lots of work to do, so you can stay in 2 John. I'm going to read some cross-references and stuff, but you can trust me um, that it's what the Bible said at those points. But you can just camp out there in 2 John. It's after 1 John and before 3 John, if that's helpful. <laughs> and guess what? It's written by the disciple John. This is a man that walked with Jesus. He's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He lays his head on the breast of our Savior at the Last Supper. He's exiled, and he's one of the last disciples to die. This book holds his words, and they are the words of God that he wrote down as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. What we're about to read is the Word of God. And what John's going to want us to get in this book is he's going to say, Love the truth. That's the big idea, right? If you don't get anything else from this morning, get love the truth. That's what he's going to teach us in this book. And he's going to show us to love the truth in a few ways. In verses 1 through 3, he's going to show us to love the truth by knowing the truth. In verses 4 through 6, he's going to tell us to love the truth by walking in the truth. Verses 7 through 11, he's going to say to love the truth by protecting the truth. And then in 12 and 13, he's going to show us to love the truth by delighting in it. So if you want to read with me here in verses 1 through 3, we'll get started. Verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children. He's writing to a church here. He's calling them the elect lady and her children. That's the church and the congregation. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. A few quick observations about these first three verses. John says that he loves them in truth. It's important to note that love, true love, always takes place in the context of truth. We also see that the truth is in us and with us forever. We see grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. So what is this great truth that John is talking about, this truth that binds us all together? Simply put, it is the gospel. That all men 
have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, just as Adam did, our father. And we're united to him in death. And that's what we deserve to inherit. Yet because Jesus comes and lives the life we should have lived and dies the death we should have died and rose from the dead bodily, we too can, by faith, be united to Christ in life. And so we move from Adam and death, we move from Adam and death over to Christ and into life. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the truth that John is talking about here. How do we know that we can trust this truth? Is the truth trustworthy? Well, it comes from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. And John here is pointing to the divinity of Jesus, right? He's saying that God is just not God the Father. He's just not one God. Well, he is one God. But he's three persons in one substance, right? He's pointing to the fact that our God is a trinity or a tri-unity. Three persons in one God. That's important to note because if God is just one, if he's just like you and me, then before he creates, he cannot love and he cannot be satisfied. So it's necessary that this truth flow from the triune God of the universe. That's one way in which we know that it's trustworthy. Another way is in what scripture tells us. Listen to what Peter has to say about the word of God. And this is going to come from 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. You can stay in 2 John though and just listen. Peter says it this way. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you guys hear what Peter's saying? He's saying... We were with Jesus Christ on this mountain, right? And that's a pretty trustworthy thing, right? We experienced it. We were there with him so we can know that it happened. And what he's saying is, the Bible that we have here, the Bible that you hold in your hands, is more sure than if you were there yourself. It's a better way to know God than if you were on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured and you heard a voice from heaven. Does that blow your mind a little bit? Let me illustrate that a little bit more for you. It's as if if I had a time machine and I stepped into it and I went all the way back in time to the time of Jesus... And I got out my iPhone and I recorded his whole life from the first to the last. And then stepped back in the time machine and came back here and projected the whole life of Christ up on the screen. That would be less reliable than the Bible that you have in front of you. This truth is trustworthy. It's from God. It's the revelation of God to us. It's better than reason, I think. It's better than tradition. We've always done it this way. It's better than experience. It's the supreme source of authority. And when we come to know this truth that is from God, we love it. And it's when we know this truth that we are compelled to live it, to walk in the truth. That's what John's going to show us next, right? John says, we're going to love the truth by knowing the truth and by walking in the truth. And now he's going to go into verse 4, right? And this is what he says. 
I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, it's not new, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that's old, it's an old commandment, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. The first question in this passage is a little confusing. It says, what is this commandment that he's calling us to walk in, right? Calling us to walk according to it. And this is a little bit tricky because he says one commandment is the old one. It's not a new commandment. But this one commandment that he's talking about is actually two. If you notice in the first one, he says command, and then he says that we walk in his commandments, plural. Well, we, we see the two main commandments that I'm going to point out throughout all of Scripture. But I'm only going to point to a couple places. First one, you ready? We're going to think of this like a coin. The first side is the vertical side. And the second side is going to be the horizontal side. So the first side, the, the vertical side, we see in Deuteronomy 6, what does God say to Israel? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. Then we see in Leviticus 19, the horizontal side. This is the second part of the commandment, right? Second side of the coin. Horizontal side says, love thy neighbor as thyself. What does Jesus do for us in Matthew 22, 36 through 40? Somebody asks him, right? This is what Jesus says. They ask, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus says to him, you ready here? Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus has shown us how we can love God and love one another. Love God and love people. John helps to flesh this out a little bit more for us. Because you say, I understand love God, but why do I need to love other people? And John, back in 1 John 5, verses 1 through 3, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, he says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So if you believe in Jesus, you're adopted into the family of God. And everyone that loves the Father loves whoever has been born of the Father. So there are other people that have been adopted into the family of God. and They're part of your family, so you should love them. It says, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. And so the way in which we love God and love one another is by keeping the commandments of God. And His commandments are not burdensome. I want to point that out. Sometimes we think of following Christ or obeying the things in the Bible as if they're restrictive, right? You might do them out of obligation. That's not what John is after here. He's not after obligatory obedience. That's not what God wants from you. He doesn't want you to just come to church because you've come to church your whole life. That doesn't save you. That's not what God is after. He's after something deeper. He's after your heart. I'm going to use an illustration to help try to bring out what John's saying here, right? Um, Some of you are married, some of you aren't, but if you have been married, you're familiar with um, what I call the the honeymoon stage, right? It's where you, you get engaged before you get married, and then you get married in the first, like, month or so after that, where you're just going, man, my wife or husband, I guess, 
is perfect, man. She is lovely. There's nothing about her that I would change. My goodness, this is marital bliss. I love it. Well, uh, in my marriage, I had similar thoughts at the beginning there, right? (laughs) But I'm going to tell you the story of a day where I was confronted with the fact that my wife was not perfect. (laughs) The first time I shared this story, I shared it in a class, and my professor wrote on my paper, and this is going to refer to verse 1. He said, did you have permission from your elect lady to share that story? <laughs> I did then and I do now. So she knows. She's consenting to this. She's on board. So she typically gets up earlier in the morning than I do. She's a nanny. She works very, very hard. Um, she's going to get her uh, putting honey through degree as I finish because that's basically what she's done for me. But she, uh, sorry, that makes me emotional. Um, so she gets up before me. And she gets in the shower, you know, she steams it up, and then she she goes off to work. I get up a little bit after her to the sound of the coffee pot. You know the sound that it makes. It's a beautiful, beautiful sound. I walk into the kitchen. It's a a nice fall morning. The leaves are changing and sipping on that sweet nectar of life and that cup of coffee. So it comes time to get ready to go off and start my day. And I, I go to get in the shower. It's still a little bit warm in there. And she's off at work. And so I pull back the shower curtain. And that's when I'm confronted with there's, th- there's something that needs to change, right? You see, apparently girls, when they take showers, um, apparently they shed like puppies. <laughs> I don't know if this is true. What, what sh- it clogs the drain. It does a whole bunch of stuff. It's really gross. Um, but what Chelsea does is she takes it to the next level. And apparently other women do this too. It was confirmed for me recently. But as she's shampooing up there and, you know, all the hair is coming out of her hand, what she does is, she takes it, this is crazy what she does, takes it and goes on the shower wall. It, it sticks on the shower wall there, right? So I'm in there, I'm examining it. It's like an art project of some type. I'm not sure what she's doing, if it's a collage. But I thought to myself, this, this has got to change. Because, man, I don't like that. So later in the day, she came home that day, and I said, you know, I brought up the hair habit. I said, could you just not do that? But here's the point. You know what she did? She stopped putting her hair on the shower wall. Hasn't done it. We've been married almost three years now since that point. She she hasn't done it. But why? Well, she submitted to my request, not because it was easy for her or convenient for her to just stop doing what had been a habit of hers for a long time, but because she loves me. Because she loves me. You see, her obedience to that request was not obligatory. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't love her because she stopped putting her hair on the shower wall. Right? She doesn't have to earn my love. I love her because she's my wife. Not because of her performance, but because of her position. So too with our Lord. When we by faith come to Jesus Christ, we are positionally in Him rather than Adam, Right? And so we're not saved by our performance, but by our position, by our status as his sons and his daughters. And so when he asks us to keep his commandments, they are not burdensome because he's not looking for obligatory obedience. He's looking for affectionate obedience, an affection that drives our obedience. We're obedient. We do things for him because we love him, because he is our precious. Right? He's our singular desire. 
what we're singularly devoted to? Is your obedience affectionate? Or is it obligatory? The thing about being in the family of God is that, or any family really, is it's not always convenient, is it? You know, you have to sacrifice things that you would like to do sometimes to to help others. One of the things I think of in my own life is uh, sometimes I'll stick around after church where we're at now to help clean up, tidy up the student ministry room where we serve. And that makes me get home a little bit late and you know, I have to hurry to get to the NFL and set my fantasy football lineup or whatever. And that's important, I guess. But not as important as our service to the body of Christ. And so inconvenience is often a byproduct of intimacy. Say that for you again. Inconvenience is a byproduct of intimacy. When you're really in a family, when you're rubbing shoulders with somebody, when you're walking in the truth as the family of God, folks are going to bother you. And if they're not bothering you, you know, if you're not picking up on their little habits that get after you a little bit, perhaps you're not close enough to them. Are you inconveniencing yourself? Or are you comfortable? Is your obedience affectionate? Are you walking out the truth that you know with the people of God? Jesus clearly inconvenienced himself when he stepped out of heaven, right? And he became affectionately obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God has highly exalted him so that in his name every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory and praise of the Father. Jesus inconvenienced himself for you. You know, he was in heaven and he was glorifying the Father. Why did he have to come to earth? Ultimately, people say, why do you have to die on the cross? To glorify the Father, right? Well, he was doing a perfectly good job of glorifying God in heaven. So why did he come? Well, for you. For you and for me. And in doing so, he brought glory to the Father. But he came here and he died for you and for me. And he did that obediently, with joy. So too for us, when we are obedient, it is unto joy, and it produces more joy, even as we serve and walk in the truth. So we've seen thus far, John has said, to love the truth by knowing the truth, by walking in the truth. And now, he's going to show us by protecting the truth. Look with me at verse 7. We're going to read through 9 here, and then we'll pick it up again at 10. So, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver in the Antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in this teaching has both the Father and the Son. These verses are a little bit tricky, so we're going to answer a couple questions at first. Um, The first thing is, who are these deceivers in the Antichrist? Deceivers are just tricky people. They're deceiving themselves and sometimes others. But Antichrist is an interesting word, right? It's one that's thrown around a lot in, you know, like the left-behind books are what come to my mind, and you see it everywhere. It's an interesting word, and it's only found in the writings of John. And it only occurs four times. That's it. And this is kind of surprising to me. It's not found in Revelation. You can check that out later. 
But what the point is, what this word means, it means instead of or against Christ. And so what these false teachers are doing is they're setting up some other system by which they can be saved or you can get salvation instead of Jesus, which is over and against Jesus. In John's day, they're known as, and this is kind of a big word, neo-Gnostics, right? It's just a fancy word that means young Gnosticism, and that comes from a Greek word that means knowledge. And so what they believe, there are two central tenets to it, and that was that everything material is very, very bad, and that you get salvation by obtaining some kind of secret knowledge that only they have and nobody really knows where it comes from. It's kind of weird. But you know, it's still around today. It developed. You know what it looks like today is, is New Age, if you've heard of that. And I would argue even a little bit of secular humanism. So one of the things we're going to recognize about false teachers is they're always predicated. They always do two things, right? Simple math. Simple math, if you're with me. Um, all false teachings, all things that are different from or opposed to Jesus are going to either add to Jesus, which Jesus plus something, and that's what I'm going to call religion. So to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus and do X, Y, Z. And here's the other false teaching that we're prone to today and they were prone to then. It's called irreligion. I just do what I want and I'm accepted on that basis. And the other one says, I obey so that I'll be accepted. But what the gospel tells us is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. You see the difference there? It's really important in order. So we can't earn our salvation. And so these false teachers are, are out, they're teaching. And then we see in verse 8, it says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Is this saying that I can lose my salvation? No, it's not saying that, but it does look a little bit tricky, right? John helps us out, and he, he, in 1 John in chapter 2, verses 19 through 25, listen to what he says to help clarify his statement here. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has made to us. Eternal life. My friend, uh, Dr. Daniel Aiken, who is the president of Southeastern Theological Seminary, uh, has a good way of summing up this verse. He says, Perseverance is proof of possession. I'll say it for you once more. Perseverance is proof of possession. And so how do I know that I'm in Christ? How do I know where I'm abiding? It's that I'm going to persevere with Him to the end. So nobody loses their salvation. Nobody starts with Jesus and then departs. It's that they never really understood the gospel. They were in one of these other things. Religion, or they were in irreligion, trying to find their own way to get acceptance from God when really all they needed to do was, by faith, trust in Jesus the Christ, our Lord. So how do I know where I abide? I love, he says, look at verse 9, he says, Everyone who goes on ahead does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. 
so I can tell where I'm abiding by looking at my feet. Am I walking intimately with Christ, or have I run ahead to try and show him how awesome I am, how much I deserve salvation? Am I walking with Christ, or have I kind of just abandoned him and fallen behind and said, I'm going to do what I want and find acceptance in my own way? Which are you most susceptible to, religion or irreligion? Because we're all prone to fall into one or the other. But it's important to say, stay grounded in the gospel. That our salvation is not on performance, but on position. That we're accepted and therefore we obey out of this affectionate obedience. So John helps them to identify these false teachers, Jesus plus or Jesus minus, right? And now he's going to tell them how to deal with them a little bit. Look with me at verse 10. It says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This is interesting. Hospitality in this culture is a huge deal, right? It's still a big deal in Middle Eastern cultures. You know, you have to go in and eat what they give you or it's a huge insult. And it's the host's responsibility to bring people into their home. Hospitality is still a big deal today. And the Bible tells us that you can't really be a Christian unless you practice hospitality, right? can't be an elder, can't be a pastor, unless you practice hospitality. And John's telling them about these people, about these false teachers, don't bring them into your house. Saying, I mean, that's huge. This is going to be shocking to those that are reading this originally, right? He's saying preservation of the truth is more important than your hospitality. What he is saying is because to take somebody into your home in this culture would give them a place or a platform from which where they could continue to propagate the false teaching, propagate their lies. And so it would be putting a rubber stamp on their message. It would be saying that um, you accept and confirm their message. You give your consent. And so what he, what he is saying is saying, don't give your consent to this message. It's unacceptable. You have to oppose it. He's not saying this isn't a proof text to be mean, right? I don't know if you get them around here where the Mormons will come and knock on your door sometime. This isn't a proof text to slam the door in their face, right? It's not a, a, not a proof text to be mean. What, he, what he's, he's saying is, is we're going to oppose them, but we're going to lovingly oppose them, right? And what love does is it always points back to Jesus, right? It remembers that we too were once lost in darkness before we heard his voice call us into marvelous light before he called us into his kingdom. And that by acting as his voice, as we read his words and proclaim the gospel to people, we offer them the choice or the opportunity to hear his voice. That's the voice that raises valleys and lowers mountains. It's the voice that shatters the rock. It's the voice that melts hearts and changes lives. It's the voice that we hear in his word and that we are obedient to affectionately. You see, we oppose false doctrine. We protect the truth by proclaiming it, by lovingly pointing to Jesus Christ. So we've seen John say to love the truth by knowing the truth, by walking in the truth, and by protecting the truth. And now we're going to see he gives us an example of delighting in the truth. Verse 12. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. In the Greek, that means mouth to mouth. It's an intimate language that he's using. 
so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister, that's the other church, greet you. When I thought about these verses, I got this picture in my head to help illustrate what I think is going on here. John's longing for his joy to be made complete. He's longing to be with the brethren. Picture this with me, if you would. A college student has been away from home for a couple semesters. He lives in the north. He drives up. It's Christmas time. Snow is falling outside. Parks at the end of the long driveway because cars have filled it up. He steps out of the car and the fog from his mouth fills the air. He grabs his bag and he begins the long walk to the door. It's cold and the chill is set into his bones. He lifts his hand to begin to knock on the door, but before his fist can land on the door, it swings open. And his father's there to grab his bags and takes him into the back room. His sister comes and puts the blanket on his shoulders, sits down with him on the couch. His mom comes in with a cup of hot chocolate, puts it in his hand, it's kind of with a little marshmallows in the top. We're pretty, we're, we're pretty German in my family, so uh, back in the day it would have been what we call clue wine. They boiled the wine and put sugar in there and clove and cinnamon sticks. It's really good. But we're Baptist here, so we're going hot chocolate. Right, that's the safe choice. So... So we, we've got, he's got his hot chocolate there, sitting in the couch. The fire is crackling. The smell of cookies is filling his nostrils. He sits back in the chair in the couch and he thinks, I am delighted. I am content. I am satisfied. He's with those that are precious to him. That's what John's getting at here, right? He's saying, I long to be with you mouth to mouth, face to face. He wants to be with the people of God and live out the truth that he's writing about with that people, with that community. He wants to be in gospel community with them. And if you'll uh, grant me the analogy to go a little bit further, in the same way that we would go into the house, the college student would go into a house and be with family and be satisfied, and that he would long for that, long for that delight. We too should long for that delight with one another. We should experience that community here and now. And that community should anticipate and act as a foretaste of that day when we will go into God's house and the Father will put His arm around us. And we will raise a toast of wine to the victorious Lamb of God who shed His blood for our sins. Who drank deep the cup of God's wrath on our behalf so that we might drink with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. To Him be the glory. Is God your singular passion? Is your obedience affectionate? Is Jesus Christ what you long for? What is precious to you? We've seen today that John would exhort you to love the truth that Jesus Christ would be what is precious to you, and that we would love the truth in gospel community together by knowing the truth, by walking in the truth, by protecting the truth, and by longing for, delighting in, being satisfied in Jesus Christ the truth. For He is the way, the truth, and the life. I want to give you all the opportunity to respond to this um, And you can stay where you are or come forward or do whatever as we work through 
um, the, the invitation hymn. And we're going to sing that together. And you can think about what is precious to you and how God might have you respond this morning. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you apart. What is your of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Father, we thank you that you prayed Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might proclaim Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Father, we long for you. We long to be with you. We exult in you. We thank you for the opportunity to be a community of believers that are bound together by your spirit, a bond that is thicker than water and thicker than blood. Thank you for allowing us to be part of your family. We thank you that at the cross we see we are more wicked than we ever dared believe and at the same time more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. We thank you for the beautiful exchange that you took our sin and hell for us, that we might get your righteousness. 
and live forever with you. We thank you that a day is coming when you're going to make all that is disharmonized and disorganized, you're going to put it into perfect harmony and all of creation together will worship you in perfect symphony. To you be the glory and the honor and the power forever. And we ask this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.